This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavila, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Welcome to episode number 18 of wow. the Science of Sex. 18! 18. We're legal, right? <laughs> I guess, I don't know. For some things, I mean, we can't drink yet. True in the, US. in the U.S., right? <laughs> but we could fight for our country if we wanted to. Yes, you could die if for you want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, how are you? I know last week you had one of your big sex socials. Sex, sex science socials. Sex, I apologize. It's, it's different. It I, sounds like we had a big orgy, I, which yes, we did not. That's a, that was a bad choice of words. <laughs> I apologize. How was your sex science social? social? There we go. It was great. We talked yeah. about what science knows about open relationships mm-hmm. and how they compare to monogamous relationships okay. in terms of all the outcomes like how satisfied and how high quality and nice. STIs, sexual health, and all other sorts of things. Cool. So what do we have coming up today on the Science of Sex podcast? So today we're doing something a little bit different from our usual format, which I know Joe is very uh, distressed about. I, you cause... know, I'm a format guy. I like, to, I like to keep things in order. But anyway, I, I can loosen up a little bit. I'm loosening up my tie, my imaginary tie. Yeah, you're going to be okay? You're going to survive this traumatic yes. event? Okay. So explain to me what we're doing. We are going to answer listeners' questions mm. because over the last 18 weeks, apparently, that we've been live, yeah. there have been a number of questions that have come our way, whether through the Science of Sex podcast uh, email address or Twitter or my email address. I don't know, Joe, have you gotten any questions about the uh, sexy stuff? Basically, the, most of the questions are like, what's it like working with Dr. Jana? Oh, It's okay. all about that. Well, we can ask you that. <laughs> so anyway, we decided that every now and then we're going to take a little break from inviting guests to talk about some of their research and just try to answer some of our listeners' questions. And this is going to be one of those times. So it's a sexual question palooza. Sure. Yeah. All right. Se- sex question palooza. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Sexual sounds a little The too science long. of sex. That's all right. I'll work on it. Foreplay. <laughs> All right, before we get to your questions, Dr. Jana, let's talk about and some- not my questions, well, you know our what I listeners' mean. questions. Our listeners' questions. I want to give you some good news, because sometimes we get brought down by all the bad news in the world. Okay. So how about some good news? Ready? Okay. Herpes infections are decreasing across nearly every demographic in the U.S., reported by the National Center of Health Statistics that look at the prevalence of both types of herpes simplex viruses from 99 to 2016. So here's the good news, Dr. John. Okay, Jana. give it to me. It found that approximately 48% of Americans that were infected with HSV-1 and 12% with HSV-2 in 2015 and 2016, now that represents a drop of 11.3% for number one and a 5.9% drop for HSV-2. All right. So look at that. So okay. people, so people are getting smart. <laughs> They're being safe, right? Is that a, is that the way I could look at these stats? I don't like using those terms like smart and safe. Okay. Because talk to me, educate me, <laughs> sex scientist. Tell tell me. Well, this is actually less about sex science and it's more about how we a- approach these things and the attitudes that we have toward our behaviors. Just because you have herpes or you've gotten herpes doesn't mean you're not smart. And by saying those kinds of things, you are stigmatizing and helping further stigmatize people who have Herpes wow. or have gotten it. You gave me a little stink eye out when you were saying that, by the mm-hmm. way. You gave me a little stink eye. You were like, I did not give you stink eye. No, I'm pretty bothered by the way we talk about 
sexual health and STIs as, you know, these people who may have gotten an STI or maybe don't even particularly care about getting or not getting an STI as dirty versus clean, right? Ah. Very often people will use these terms like, oh, I'm clean, as if you if you have chlamydia, you're dirty somehow. <laughs> and that's and that's just very stigmatizing language and the kind of language that you just use now. Oh. Like, they're getting smarter and safer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think people are dumb if or dumber okay. if they have herpes if versus if they don't have herpes. Okay. So, I mean, this is good news in the general sense of, okay, we have fewer herpes infections, both HSV1 and HSV2, and that's good news, but... All right, you just didn't like the way I said that there? Was that yeah. what I said? Okay, all right, yeah. cool. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm learning. All right, that's good. This is this I, this I is also educational for me, this podcast, because I'm mm-hmm. learning that, you know, the, the stigma mm-hmm. of having an STI is not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, exactly. And especially with herpes, uh, I think herpes is an interesting one because unlike the bacterial STIs, it is not curable. Okay. Like you get it and you have it for life, mm-hmm. unlike like chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, which you get it, you go and take a pill or a couple of pills yeah. or a shot and then you're cured. You right. do not have it anymore. Herpes is a special place because you have it for life, but it does not kill you. That leads to a lot of stigma around it that you're you have the scarlet letter h mm. as opposed to the a right? <laughs> right. that stays with you forever once after you get it but at the same time i think that stigma is so incommensurable with the actual discomfort mm. just think about it let's say you have genital herpes and you have an outbreak once a year that means you can't have sex for about maybe seven days or however long that outbreak lasts more or less. And let's say the rest of the time you're on antiretroviral therapy and your likelihood of transmitting it, even though there is some likelihood of transmitting when you don't have an outbreak, it's relatively low. So one week of not being able to have sex, you can still do everything else. You can survive, you're saying, if people don't have sex for a week? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And most people can absolutely survive without problems, not having sex for a week. Now, take the flu. It's been bad lately. Yeah. And what is... Having the flu for a week mean you can't do anything. No, you stay home, you rest, you drink liquids, all that jazz. You're miserable, you mm-hmm. can't go to work, you can't be social, you can't do anything that you want to do. And yet somehow people see getting herpes once a year as so much worse <laughs> than getting the flu once yeah. a year. If you ask me, would you like to, if oh, you geez. have a choice. Here we go. Are we playing a new game, herpes or flu? Is this <laughs> yeah, where we're going? I, I think we should. And if that, you know, you play that game with me, you're like, you get to have herpes outbreak once a year or you get to have the flu once a year. I will absolutely choose to get a herpes <laughs> outbreak once a year. All right. Well, that's cool. I, I, I didn't think I'd be asking you that question today, <laughs> but I'm glad we now know. I wish you knew more about it. I, I, I wish you kind of did some research before you came in here and started just like vomiting. <laughs> all this knowledge. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad you knew a little bit about it. So thank you very I'm, much for sharing I'm, I'm, that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I hit a nerve once I started that. You kind of gave me that crooked eye and you're like, I have some knowledge I'm going to impart here. But I'm glad no, you but, did. But this is good because we've known in terms of the data, just to go back to the actual news, very often the numbers that we've thrown around, which we've known about since like the 2000, yeah. uh, right? The study is is saying the differences from 99. Uh, right? From 99, right. 2016. Right, yep. right. So more or less uh, in the last 17 years. The, the numbers that we've had thus far ha- have always been something like 70 ish percent of of people have HSV1 and something like 16-17% of people have HSV2 and now basically the new data seems to be no it's kind of more like half of people have HSV1 and only about 10%, slightly over 10% have HSV2. Okay, now, right? I, I, yeah, so I know you don't know much about this, but let me ask you one thing. <laughs> uh, just for, for the layman, 
what is the difference between HSV one and HSV two? And please oh. give me the the uh, USA Today version, not the Dr. Jana. I've been studying this for twenty years version. No, I've not been studying this for twenty years. <laughs> HSV one is herpes simplex virus one. Okay, right? and it's the one that is most commonly associated with oral outbreaks, okay. oral herpes. And HSV two is the one most commonly associated or most commonly causing genital outbreaks. Got it. All right. Well, thank you very much for educating me on the herpes thing. You're very welcome. Uh, can I educate you on some stuff? Ooh. The shoe's going to be on the other hand here. You ready? Please. So, <laughs> please. It almost sounds like you're mocking me. Anyway, so Plenty of Fish, you know the dating site, right? Yeah. They put together a list of the five new dating terms. You know, like people say ghosting, uh-huh. like when someone decides to disappear, that's that's a, a popular dating term. Yes. Let me give you the new ones. Number one, flexting. Flexting? Flexting. What's, is that like from flexible sexting? No, it is not. <laughs> so flexting is when you brag a lot when you're messaging with someone before you meet. So flexting is like while you're <gasps> texting someone, you'll be like, hey, listen, I'm going to be going to the Hamptons this weekend. Right, oh, I've got right. a car. So <laughs> men are more likely to do it. Six- like flexing your muscles over text. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So it's not a literal flexing of the muscle. It's uh-huh, a figurative. Uh-huh. Okay. So 63% of women say they've gotten those kind of messages Versus, get this, 38% of men. So, shockingly, men are more likely no to No kidding. Wow. <laughs> All right. Here's the second one. Cricketing. You want to guess what cricketing is? Uh, I, I, I have no, no idea. All right. So, basically, no. that's when you go days without responding to a text. It's sort of like so when that's I- that's ghosting. No, no, no. Uh-huh. So, no. So, basically, ghosting is when you disappear off the face of the earth. Cricketing is like what you do to me. When I text you, you get back to me four days later. I don't do that. All right. So, that's cricketing. So, basically, it's, it's a delayed response on a text. Okay. So, it's okay. in between responding and ghosting. Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Cricketing? Why cricketing? Cricketing. Because, you know, it's, you go silent. So you you don't disappear, but oh, you go crickets. silent. I keep thinking of the sport cricket. Oh, geez, I'm like that always. makes no sense. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Now you get it. all yeah. right. See, this is very so, educational. Sorry, I'm sometimes I, slow. I, yeah, you are educating. I me. love it. All right, so this one's weird. Ghost busting. This is when someone tries to ghost you, but you won't let them. Oh. <laughs> it's basically you hammer them with messages until they finally respond. And I'm sure you've known something like this in your life, where basically you're trying to just not respond to it, but they just hammer away. <laughs> Uh, one of my good friends just did some ghost busting of this guy who, you know, they had a little fight and then he disappeared. And she was like, come on, dude, you're not going to ghost on me, are you? And there was no response. And she started sending him a little ghost emoji once a day. Oh, that's hysterical. Yeah. And did he ever the- respond? Yes, actually. Okay. I think two or three days after the ghost emoji started, he said, I'm not ghosting. <laughs> I promise. Oh. And then she was like, if you're not ghosting, what are you doing? And then no response again. So I don't know if she's restarted the ghost emojis or not. So he's cricketing. So that's what it sounds like because right, he waited to right, respond. I suppose. But that's good. So she was ghost busting. I like that. So you see, you, you didn't worked. realize it. it worked. <laughs> All right. So here's another one. Serendipidating. What? Hey, this one's a mouthful. I, I how, can't... how are you turning serendipity or serendipitous into a verb? Listen, I'm not making this stuff, but that's when you put off a date just to give yourself a little extra time to meet someone better. Uh. So this might be good for you because it sounds like something you would do. So basically, there's like a you you there's a guy you're zeroed in on hypothetically. Okay. You zeroed in on, and they're like, he's good, but there's this other guy I'd really prefer to date. So okay. you you kind of keep that guy number one in mm-hmm. your atmosphere in uh-huh. sort of like your universe, just in case that other guy doesn't text back or respond to you. And finally, 
Fawbaying. What? I, I'll spell this one yeah. for you. It's F-A-U-X-B-A-E. Oh, like faux, like fake? Fake and bay, like bay, uh-huh. and ing, making it into uh-huh. a verb. That's when someone pretends to have a significant other on social media when they're single, usually <laughs> to make their ex jealous. Oh, my God. So you would say you're on social oh, media bae. and you decide to post a picture of a hot girl and be like, hey, hanging out with the bay today to make other people jealous. So that is faux baying. Have you ever done that before? Oh my God, no. No, it didn't no, sound like no, something no. you'd do. So I love the give and take we had. You educated me. I love it. I educated you and we lived happily ever after. Yay. And now let's educate our listeners by answering some of their questions. Sex question palooza? Yes. All right, let's do it. The Science of Sex goes deeper. Dr. Jana, we had a great episode last week about gay cuckolding. Oh my God, I love that one, yes. That was really good. So our first question has to do with that. Great. You ready? (laughs) Is there any difference between cuckolding and an open relationship? I'm a 17-year-old young man interested in becoming a bull. In a cuckold relationship, is it better for a woman to have a really younger bull? Hmm. Okay, so a couple of questions. Is cuckolding different from an open relationship? Yes. It is a type of an open relationship. So if you take the entire universe of open relationships and the different types that would fall under that, cuckolding is one type. And specifically when you have a committed couple where one partner, usually in a straight couple, it's the man, gets really turned on by the idea of seeing his partner, usually the the woman, Mm. being sexually active with somebody else, with another man in particular. It will be set up, so the sexual interaction will be set up in a way that, say, uh, the husband watches the wife with the bull, the other man, in uh, interacting sexually, and it could have more of a humiliation component. Right, BDSM, like we discussed. Like mm-hmm. right? They can be tied up, not unable to touch themselves or something like that, or it could be just a voyeuristic kind of thing. So that's just one type of open relationship. There are many others. There are so many different like rules and, yeah. and arrangements that people can have around who can do what, with whom, and when. As for the age, there is... Very little research on straight couples. We learned a little bit about gay couple research last time. And the age of the bull didn't seem to matter for the gay couples that Justin Miller and his co-authors studied that we heard about last time. The age of the bull didn't seem to make a difference. And we don't have similar data on straight couples to say whether the the women or the men who are being cuckolded would prefer a younger or an older bull. My sense is that probably an older bull, if there is a preference, there might be more of a preference for an older bull simply because of the dominance factor. Because very often in this fantasy, the bull is someone who's very powerful and dominant. And usually an older man has had more chance, more time right. in life to become experienced, yeah, whether yeah. it's based on status or resources. Although very often it is about the physical yeah, the power size. and prowess. Yeah. And so both being like tall and very muscular and big uh, in terms of body size and also having a big penis is what is going to determine the attractiveness of the bull. So I think as long as at least some of those characteristics are present yeah. in a particular male specimen <laughs> that yeah. you might be a desirable bull. So answering this kid's question, so basically, I mean, it just depends on the person, but more likely, like you're saying, they would probably want an older fellow or someone who's more experienced. Maybe. It's, it's possible, yeah. yeah. We don't. We simply don't have data, but, um, but that is not to say that just because you're younger, you'd be automatically disqualified. Right. 
As, There's as no long. bull age limit, right? <laughs> no, no, I mean, you might be disqualified uh, based on your uh, inability to provide uh, informed consent yeah. at age 17 because in a number of U.S. states, the age of consent is 18. Oh, okay, true. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, he's starting early. He's doing this research early. He wants to see if he yes, can get out there early. Yes, he wants to prep, and that's great. Good it's for good him. to know and think about what are your preferences and desires and interests, sexually speaking, and then learn about them and hopefully get to experience some of those things in a way that's pleasurable and consensual and so on. Cool. I'm going to throw you a curveball. I just got this tweeted to me from a young lady. She goes, okay. why do some girls not orgasm through sex alone? Uh, okay. Well, we've talked about this several times on the podcast, and I would highly encourage listeners to listen to some yeah. of those episodes where we talk about orgasm. But basically, the primary orgasm organ for the women is the clitoris, not the vagina, mm -hmm. even though some women can have these internal orgasms yeah. because their, their internal portion of the clitoris is being stimulated by penetration. That's less common. Mm -hmm. And what we need to have is clitoral stimulation of the external portion of the clitoris, which is easier to get to not with penetration, but with fingers or toys or mouth or right. you know something that will put external stimulation on the clit. Well, if you want to look back at that, that was episode number four, Unlocking mm -hmm. the Secrets of the Female Orgasm. So there's more of that With there. Jim Faust? Yeah. yeah. Oh, but yeah. that's but you basically did a nice little encapsulation <laughs> there that, you know, the penis doesn't just do it. It's just, you got to need a little more than that. <laughs> yes, you need some type of clitoral stimulation. And then the follow-up question is here, and this is, I know this one's going to annoy you because when I joke about this, uh -huh. it sets you off a little bit. Okay. So <laughs> please don't get mad at me just right away. Okay. Is it just a myth that men have a higher sex drive than women? Because that doesn't apply to this person. Because I know you always you always get down at me. It's not. It's a known fact that women. No, women want to, no, yes. I, I don't get mad at you. you get a little bit, a little bit, no, a little bit. And that's actually a, a very well worded question too. Like, yeah. Is it a myth that men have higher sex drive, higher than, women? Sex drive than women on average? On average, it seems to be true. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, based on every study ever conducted mm -hmm. that we have, men will report higher sex drive, that they think about sex more often, that they masturbate more often, that they are uh, more interested in having more partners, that they, they're willing to spend more time and resources trying to get laid. <laughs> they get more distressed and unhappy when they don't get laid for a period of time. So there are all of these different kinds of indicators mm -hmm. that they are uh, more interested in, in, in having sex more often. And that's the definition of sex drive. Like, how often yeah. do you want to have sex? Now, of course, that is not true for everybody. It's not like all men yes. are have high. <laughs> you love that now. All well, men think you always well, love uh, that. <laughs> it's really important because yeah. that's how very often this gets interpreted. That basically we're talking about men are from Mars and women are from Venus, kind of thing. That all men have higher sex drives than all women and vice versa. And that is simply not true. Yes. We're talking about a continuum, a bell curve, norm, normal distribution where you have many, many women whose sex drive is higher than many men and vice versa. There are many men out there whose sex drive is lower than many women. It's just that on average, this seems to be the case. Now, this is not the end of the conversation because the next question is why, why do we see this? Is this something biological? Is, mm. Are we talking about biological difference between men and women that on average you see this? Or is this purely a function or a result of social uh, factors, Jeez. right? And so, but that's that's a loaded. <laughs> that, that's well, a, that's a very big question. Yeah. And my answer to almost all of these types of questions are the sex differences purely biological or purely social. My answer is that of course it's both biological and social. Like there are 
some clear biological reasons for why you might want men to be always kind of ready on the go. And that might be more beneficial to men than it is to women. Whereas for women, they have just less evolutionary benefits from being ready all the time. Right. They might be more ready when they're ovulating. They might be more ready when they have the right kinds of partners and not the wrong kinds of partners yeah. and, and so on. Uh, they are less ready when they're pregnant. They're less ready when they are postpartum after birth, mm. less interested because there are evolutionary reasons for being less interested. At the same time, so there there is probably some level of biological predisposition for this general average difference. At the same time, pretty much across every culture, every time, every place, we have seen greater suppression of female sexuality compared to male sexuality. And we've taught women to be less sexual and think that they are less yeah. sexual. So I think the socialization compounds, makes the biological difference even bigger than it would be otherwise. So that's my view based on all the data that I've seen and all the research that it has been done on this topic. Cool. Well, Lois, thank you for that question. Uh, now, here's another one. And I'm assuming this is from a guy. Do mm-hmm. any girls slash women actually enjoy giving blowjobs slash swallowing? I love this question. And the answer, the answer is yes, absolutely. There are girls and women out there who enjoy giving blowjobs. Up until recently, I wouldn't have been able to give you some really good hard data on how many. But if you remember, Joe, from our first episode ever that we did on the Science of Sex podcast, which was about this nationally representative study of American adults that asked people about like, 30 or 50 different sex acts, whether they've done it and whether they found them appealing or not. Well, giving oral sex was one of the things that they asked about. And we know that 20% of women in the U.S. found giving oral sex very appealing. 37% found it somewhat appealing, making up basically about 60% of uh, women saying that giving blowjobs were at least somewhat appealing appealing and about 40% saying that they were either not appealing or not at all appealing. It's um I mean it's almost close to 50/50 though too. You're 58% that like it and like in the yeah. 42 not not so yeah, not a big fan so, of it. Yeah, so well 60/40. 60, 40, okay. 60, 60, I'm, I'm going to go with 60/40. You're rounding 40. up. Okay. I'm I was rounding I was up. rounding down. You're you rounding can up. round <laughs> down from 8. Okay. 8 is closer <laughs> to 10 than to 0. Okay. okay. I was being the pessimist there. Okay. <laughs> no, come on. We need some optimistic okay. uh, uh, news here. So yes, about 60% of women in the U.S. like them, at least somewhat, and about 40% don't. But what percentage of men do you think like receiving oral? Uh, 120%. Is that a real number? <laughs> That's not a real number. No, you can't a... have 120%. Uh, I'll 85%. 85%. Wow. You are like right on. Really? Yeah. This data said this same study found yeah. that exactly 85% of men said that they liked receiving oral sex at least somewhat. Wow. Most of them, so 60% said like it's very appealing. Yeah. 25% said it's somewhat yeah. appealing. But a yeah, overall, 85%. So without sounding like a Neanderthal, did like so I wonder why 15% of men don't like blowjobs. Are they just not, not a fan, huh? I don't know. Yeah. yeah there's nothing universal <laughs> in sex, as I often like to yes. say. And even though guys often think it's impossible, you know, many guys who do like blowjobs yeah. are like, how do you, there are no men out it's there like who pizza. don't. It's like pizza. Like every, yeah, every exactly. when someone says they don't like pizza, like, yeah. whoa, what's wrong with you? Are you crazy? Exactly. Or ice cream or something yeah. like that. But there is a minority of people who don't actually like pizza or ice cream or blowjobs. Right. We should put that on a shirt. Uh, one part of that question we didn't uh, mention, the swallowing thing. Do we know anything about that? We unfortunately don't have this kind of good data on swallowing, and I can't think of any 
really study that yeah. try to quantify the number of people, number of women or number of men who are into this uh, kind of behavior. My guess is it's going to be something smaller than the 60% of yeah. women who say that they like blowjobs because there's an additional component of actually interacting with the bodily fluid yeah. of sperm. And very often that gets represented as gross or disgusting in, in our culture and also has an additional component of sexual health uh, risk that is increased if you interact in, with right. with uh, with sperm in your mouth, right? So it's funny that for a study you mentioned that we talked about in the first episode. It was so detailed. I mean, I remember there was like a, a six thousand questions, or I mean, not the six thousand. That, that was not they on asked there. About fifty different sex acts. Yeah, that people six thousand fifty. It's about the same. Yeah. <laughs> No, but I'm surprised that didn't come up. I guess maybe the next oh, one there's around. There's so many things yeah. that could have been asked about that. Yeah, that's just one of the things that did not make make this first cut. So Okay. All right, so this is not a blowjob show, but we do have one more question. <laughs> more blowjobs? Jesus. Yes. Well, your fans love blowjobs, apparently. We're asking about them. All right, do you agree with all those women who say that blowjobs are degrading for women? Is it something that you as a woman could do, or is it something that is only liked by people who watch a lot of porn? Oh, this is a great question because it has so many layers that I want to okay. <laughs> I want to get to. Okay, do I agree that blowjobs are degrading for women? Uh, absolutely not. I think something is degrading to someone if it is being done in a degrading way, mm-hmm. and the person being done to thinks that it is degrading. Okay. So if I like to give blowjobs. I don't find them degrading and I am giving a blowjob to someone who didn't force me yeah. <laughs> into giving him or coerce me into giving me a blowjob. I'm doing it out of my own uh, free will. Then I don't see absolutely anything degrading in that. On the other hand, if I see that particular behavior is degrading and then someone does it to me, then yes, I would see that as degrading. So I, uh, I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to place an entire type of sexual act and say that it is by default somehow automatically degrading. You can have a woman giving blowjobs on her knees, giving blowjobs to 20 different guys and all of them coming all over her face and all that. And if she's loving it and she doesn't think of that as a degrading act, she just loves cock and loves cum and the guys who are there are like, oh my God, we just want to give you what you want, Mm -hmm. then there's nothing degrading in that process. You can do the exact same thing and make it degrading. Okay. Right? By saying things that would imply Mm. that they are degrading her by doing this act to her. And then that can be sexualized. Some people like to be degraded. So they can say, blowjobs are degrading, but I like it. And therefore, I'm going to place myself in a position where I'm being degraded by having this act done to me. But it's all in the interpretation of whether this is a degrading act or not. Another example that um, I, I interact with more often is is strap-on sex. Like men who like to be penetrated anally by strap-ons. Pegging, as they pegging, call it as yes, well. Yes, yeah. pegging, exactly. By by women, not by men. You can do that. So some so, so some men find that to be degrading, right, because... The, They're the, being dominated to a certain extent, right? Yeah, because because the act of being penetrated is kind of a, a feminine, uh, right, act, and mm-hmm. and uh, by by penetrating their anus, you are somehow degrading them, and they want that, mm-hmm. right, because it is kind of a degrading thing. But then I meet a lot of uh, men, straight men, who are interested in that act simply because it feels good, and they don't see it, they don't interpret it 
in any way, shape, or form as degrading, and all they want is the sensation of having something penetrate their ass. Right. So, right, you can do, do the absolute exact same act. And same way, yeah. same thing, same mm-hmm. night of day, don't matter, just, yeah. it's just the way you look at it. Exactly. And so this, I see the exact same for blowjobs. So basically, if you want a blowjob and you have a partner who is willing to interact with you sexually, find out whether this is something that she wants mm-hmm. or not. Okay. And whether that's something degrading to her, but she still wants it, or it's something degrading to her and she doesn't want it. Now, let's talk about the porn part of the question. Is it something that's liked by people who watch a lot of porn? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, blowjobs are not liked because of porn. So I don't have exact data whether people who are who watch porn are more into blowjobs or less into blowjobs. My guess would be that the people who watch a lot of porn are more likely to be interested in blowjobs, but not necessarily because they see it in porn. Uh, very often because those people are just more interested in sex, period, and they're more sexually adventurous and they're more likely to want and be interested in all sorts of sexual activities. Although there's probably some bi-directional thing going on there too, whereas if if this is something that was never a big part of your sexual repertoire in your head before you started watching yeah. porn, it just might give you some ideas and you'd be like, oh yeah, that looks that kind of fun. That looks fun. I yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. Right. Well, I am fresh out of fellatio questions. Oh, thank God. I, I, Can we not talk about blowjobs anymore? Is there, are there any other questions? I mean, we could talk about it another time, but right now okay. I'm, I'm fresh out. Thank um, you. So our next question is part of our sex question palooza. I mean, it's sort of related, but not exactly. Okay. okay? So Great. The, so this question is, should guys shave their pubes? Now, I'm going to read a quote here, Dr. John. It's not okay. me reading it, okay? okay. This, is, this is someone's right. I'm not talking about myself here. I don't shave mine because when I see a woman, I like her to have a bush, is what this person wrote. Uh-huh. I heard having pubic You sure that that's not you? You're no, talking about c- yourself? Certainly not me. Okay. Can I continue? I heard having pubic hair is known to lower risks for STDs. Okay, so this is an interesting one. Should guys shave their pubes? Well, should. I mean, that depends on what is of relevance to you. Uh, it seems like on, on one hand, we're asking about sexual health. Like, are there any benefits to shaving pubes for a lowering risk of STIs. But then there are other ways that you can think about this question is like, what do partners, potential partners prefer? As the guy says, like, I don't shave mine because I actually like hair on my partners. So here's some data that we have on this. We actually have some data. Wow, all right. Yeah. Uh, There was a nationally representative study of almost 8,000 U.S. adults, 18 and over. And it found that basically 65% of men and over 85% of women had ever groomed their pubic hair. Okay. So grooming could have been even trimming or... Cleaning com- it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, or yeah. completely removing. So at any level of grooming, there was 65% of men and 85% of women had ever groomed. Well, and that makes mm-hmm. sense too, because women probably, you know, the 84%, they probably get bikini waxes, all that sort of... Oh, there's yeah, yeah, all sorts of things sorts that, of thing that they can get, mm-hmm. yes. And it is more likely that women are kind of more frequent and more extreme groomers than men, meaning they obviously more frequent yeah. and they are more likely to remove more hair. Right. So they're more likely to kind of do a Brazilian mm-hmm. uh, versus the guys who are more likely to trim or or uh, fully remove less gotcha. uh, percentage-wise mm-hmm. of, of the pubic hair. Those are some basic data okay. on, on how prevalent grooming is. Now, as far as the STIs go, it's actually the opposite from what our listener uh, suggested pubic hair, there's no evidence that lowers 
risk of STI. In fact, this nationally representative study found that the people who groomed at any level were more likely to report a history of STI. And that was true of pretty much all STIs that they looked at. Hmm. Herpes, HPV, syphilis, uh, chlamydia, HIV, gonorrhea was the only one that was not significantly different between the groomers and the non-groomers. And the more frequent grooming was and the more extreme, so the more hair was removed, the higher the odds of having had almost any of these STIs. Could that be because you're, since you're more sexually active, you care more about the condition of things down there? <laughs> so glad you asked. In, <laughs> yes. So you would expect that there might be some correlation with how often these people have sex and maybe how many different partners they have sex with. Statistically, for how often people had sex and how many different partners they had had sex with, there was still a relationship between grooming and high risk of STIs. Hmm. So, so yes, it's true. Groomers have more sex and they have sex with more people than non-groomers. But even when you control for that statistically, you still find the groomers having more uh, STIs or higher risk of STIs. And the more extreme the grooming and the more frequent the grooming, the higher the risk. The only STI that this was not true of entirely was pubic lice. Oh, geez. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> right. Because if there's no pubic hair, you can't get lice, right? Exactly. Look at me. So, very, very, very good deductive reasoning. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Excellent, Joe. Now, this this was a little more complicated. The groomers actually still, overall, as an entire group of groomers, because that includes the people who only trim as well as the people who do Brazilians. It's the whole right? runs again. Everybody yeah. who has ever groomed, they, they had higher risk of having had pubic lice than the people who had never groomed. But within the groomers... The more extreme groomers, the one who re- the, the ones who removed hair completely, had lower risk than the people who only trimmed, which makes sense yeah. because they don't have the hair. They for don't the- have the hair. For what the pubic is pubic lice. lice, by the way? I'm not familiar with it. It's a little little bug. You know, you know, like hair lice. Yeah, uh, it's very similar to that. It just lives in the pubes, and when you kill its habitat, it's uh, gone. It's it's gone. There's, I mean, it goes extinct. And it's sexually transmitted pubic lice? It's sexually transmitted okay. because when you mix your pubic hair with somebody else's pubic hair, the little insect can just walk over to the yes, other walks. to the other field. Take subway over. <laughs> they don't take the subway over. They just walk. You know, they, they like to walk. So that does answer the question that basically. So this guy who would who'd written you, but basically want to know if he shaved his pubes, he wouldn't get an STI. Yes, in fact, no. If anything, if there is any causal relationship, and we don't know if it's a causal relationship or it's still correlational in in, in nature, but it definitely is not going to help you prevent. STIs by shaving your pubes. Now, you might choose to do that because of what partners prefer. And the only study that I could find on preferences regarding pubes was a study of about 1,100 students from two U.S. universities. Uh, They were asked about their pubic hair preferences. Among women, 25% said that they preferred pubic hair free. So a quarter of these young university women... They want their guys to have the porn shave. Yes, they want wow. the porn shave. 26% said they wanted it trimmed, and 25% said partially shaved or waxed. Oh, wax. Guys don't wax. Do guys of course, wax? Of course they can. Really? Yeah. That seems like a bad area to wax. No, no. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's totally doable. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll take a passkey on that. That's okay. <laughs> you know, so, some of us ladies don't like a lot of hair. And then there are other ladies who love hair. So basically, when it comes to preferences, it seems like women are kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. 
if these women are an indication of what other women yeah. might be into. So if you like a bush, then there will be people out there who will like that. Right. And if you like a cue ball, yeah, they got those too. Exactly. In this study, if you're asking about completely hair-free, 50% of women and 19% of men said that they were completely hair-free down there. Wow. Yeah. Basically, one in five men and one in two women were completely hair-free. And as far as the preferences go, 60% of the men and 25% of the women said that they wanted their partners to be completely f- hair-free down there. And you know what? I hate to say it, but you know me, I always like to make generalities. Guys watch porn. They mm-hmm. never see, oh, they see all these women that are pretty much mostly shaved in the, in the, in the glossy oh, sure. porn. So they're like, hey, I want what's on there on my monitor over I, there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think the preferences for these things, those are purely cultural. cultural yeah. Yeah. All right, so can we get serious? Because we kind of goofed around. We talked about, you know, blowjobs and pubic hair okay. and all this other stuff. I got a couple serious questions for okay. you. Ready? So put your uh, your professor hat on. Right. Grab that professor Oof. hat. Or, that deep breath. Should I take some deep breath? Yeah, breaths? sure. Okay. Breathe a little. Make sure you breathe. That's good. Okay. So in our mandatory college sexual assault prevention course, they seem to say that any drinking or drug use makes you incapable of providing sexual consent. Do you agree? I disagree. You disagree. Very strongly disagree. Okay, what part of that do you disagree with? <laughs> so this has been something, actually, my students have been talking about this a lot in, in our human sexuality class, that now more and more universities have these mandatory sexual assault prevention programs that basically every incoming freshman has to go through. It's usually an online Part course. of orientation, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's part of orientation. And this is relatively new. And I applaud the universities for trying to do something. Yeah. <laughs> right? for reducing rates of sexual assault. But I think that very often they don't get things right. I think this is one of those things when it comes to drug use and and alcohol. We've seen as sexual consent has become more and more important and we've been discussing it more and more in in our culture, it seems like there is a movement or there is a group of people and, and a very loud group of people and group of voices that have been arguing that any amount of alcohol or drugs or any kind of substance that is mind altering Mm -hmm. makes you completely incapable of providing consent. And I personally think that that is insane. What person in their right mind thinks that? That makes absolutely no sense. Like even if like drinking and driving, if you are below (laughs) the blood alcohol limit, you can drive legally. So why would just one beer not give Mm -hmm. you the ability to to provide consent? I am not sure. I think... They're coming from a position of trying to uh, reduce risk and err on the side of caution as much as possible. Extreme caution, apparently. But this is absolute extreme caution to the point of being actively harmful, I think. Because if you tell people that they can never provide consent if they've had any amount of alcohol or drugs, that means that pretty much anybody who's ever drank and had sex while drinking or, or high on drugs is a victim of sexual assault and a perpetrator yeah. of sexual assault at hmm. the same time. And I don't think we want to be claiming that because, it, you know, so many of people's experiences are going to end up being sexual assault. And I don't think that's useful yeah. or healthy for anyone to feel like a victim or a perpetrator just because they had fully consensual sex when they had been drinking. And that can be true even if you're drunk. Just because you're drunk yeah. doesn't mean that you cannot provide consent. It all depends on the circumstances. Now, there's no doubt that the more... Yeah, if you're blackout drunk, obviously. But even yeah. e- even if you're a little more drunk, yeah. if you're feeling it to some extent, so the more you're drinking or the higher you are 
the less capable you are of making these decisions yeah. about what it is that you really want to do, making the risk benefit assessment that you could do when you're sober. So the risk of you doing something that you might regret the next day increases. And and certainly if you're like blacked out drunk or passed out, yeah. then obviously yes. you're inca- incapacitated. And, and at that point, if you're in- incapacitated, that would be rape, like yeah. clear cut case of rape. However, I think some of these programs and some of these pieces of advice that people are giving are coming from a uh, from some good intentions from some they're from overcompensating a, it seems like that's y- exactly what they're doing I think basically that's a good they're, way of it. they're going from 0 to 60 because mm-hmm. th- these were not here so they're going 0 to 60 in mm-hmm. 5 seconds mm-hmm. and not even realizing what they're doing they're just saying mm-hmm. hey listen we didn't have any anything in place so right. now all of a sudden if you're drinking or doing drugs you cannot consent. Yeah, period, ever. And ever. I don't think that's helpful yeah. for anyone or anything. What I would say is there is absolutely no doubt that the more you drink or the more high you get, the higher the risk yeah. of being sexually assaulted or of ending up doing something that you regret the next day. And so be careful the, in which contexts yeah. you are drinking. And that depends a lot on the context. I, are you having sex with someone who you already know who you're in some sort of a relationship with, who you already have given consent in your mind and and, uh, negotiated that beforehand. Or is this a new environment where you don't know people, where you might be hooking up with someone new or something like that? So the less established of a partner somebody is to you, the higher the risk of alcohol or drugs adding lack of consent to the mix and and vice versa, the more established someone is. It's always weird when stuff like this happens at colleges because – they're surrounded by educators. You'd think if they asked enough educators what they thought about this, they would probably come up with a logical <laughs> Yeah, but the thing is, rule. Th- this is a it's a complex thing. Yes. Adding alcohol to the mix it makes for this massive gray area where it becomes very unclear, is this assault? Is this just consensual sex that ends up being regretted the next day? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people just like black and white answers, like clear-cut kind of yeah. answers, and this is an easy way to be very clear-cut about it. Now, if if you are worried about being a perpetrator, then erring on the side of caution might not be the worst idea. Like You can have it for your own personal moral code that you're not going to hook up with someone who's been drinking especially if it's someone that you don't know very well yeah. and you've never hooked up before or haven't hooked up with many times. So it, it, it can be a good way of preventing somebody else regretting or feeling the next day as they may have been coerced yeah. by you into So no college but, kid would ever get laid if they were to do that. But, because, but especially the way, yeah, you know? especially the way sex is being done on college campuses these days, especially hooking up, it is almost always started with alcohol or pot or something. Even if it's just like a sip or like a can, (laughs) it starts with there, but it doesn't mean that they're getting drunk. So I definitely think people are going, uh, would be having much better and more enthusiastic and more fun sex if they were being less drunk when doing it. Sure. So I highly, (laughs) highly recommend drinking less before having sex, but just because someone had a drink or two, uh, or even a sip, yeah. definitely does not make it non-consensual. All right, again, I did not write this question, but you'll probably get that by the way I'm phrasing it. So uh, <laughs> I'm a mother of a four-year-old boy who- You're re- not a mother? No, I'm not a mother. Wow. So just so you know. I'm so surprised. Uh, I'm a mother of a four-year-old boy who recently started claiming he's a girl. I've been trying to figure out what are the odds that my kid is really trans, or if he's going to grow out of this phase and accept that he's a boy. Boy, you really left the- 
serious ones. I for, told you to the last. end. Yeah, we had a little front. You know, the, the, we had the appetizers, which were right. like the, the mozzarella sticks and the chicken nuggets. And now okay. we're getting into the, the meaty steak? stuff. Yeah, this is the okay. steak right here. Oh, boy. So this gets at a controversy that has been going on in the last, like, I don't know, maybe five, ten years mm-hmm. in, in our culture around how to interpret these pre-trans kids, like kids who are coming out at a very young age, like age three, four, five, pre-puberty and all that, who are saying that they're not the gender that they were assigned at birth. And how do we view them? Are they going to grow up to be trans adults and therefore need to go through puberty blockers early on and then um, cross gender hormones and then gender confirmation surgery? Are they almost certainly going to go down that route? Or could some of them just be in a phase of not being happy for whatever reason with their current gender or gender assigned at birth? And are they very likely or to go back to accepting their gender assigned at birth? The kind of scientific academic terms for this is, are they going to persist Hmm. in identifying as trans or are they going to desist from identifying as trans and kind of go back to being whatever gender they were assigned at birth. There's a lot of political kind of um, heat around this question. Uh, A lot of the trans activists out there have been trying to claim that desisting is a myth, that basically all or the vast, vast majority of kids who at any point in their development say that they are of the other gender are going to persist and end up going through the transition and becoming trans adults. Whereas, Re- Wait, hold. Yeah. All, they all think that they will persist? There is there is a very strong set of voices out there claiming that if not 100%, Interesting. that at least something like 80 or 90% of these pre-trans kids, if you will, will end up being trans. At this point, there have been about 12 studies or so that have followed children brought into gender clinics or in some way identified as potentially gender dysphoric, that is to say, unhappy with whatever, their sex, yeah. with whatever their gender assigned at birth is and following them over time to see what happened to them. And virtually every single one of those studies has shown that the majority of them desist. Hmm. So they go back to identifying and being happy with the gender assigned to them at birth. Now, the exact percentages vary. Some of the studies have found something like 90% desist. Wow. Yeah, and some have found something more like 60 percent. It's still desist, higher, yeah, but sure. But it's still, it's the majority. It's either yeah. a small majority or a large majority of these kids will desist. And this has been a sore point, I think, for a lot of trans activists because they feel somehow this reality of the majority or many, even if yeah. let's say half of them desist and half of them persist, that that somehow invalidates all trans kids or invalidates trans people's rights to getting access to all the kinds of surgeries and hormones and all the interventions that they need to live happy lives. And so they've been very, very adamant about arguing against this and arguing that desistance is a myth. And really, there is no evidence to suggest that desistance is a myth. Right. In fact, it's the opposite. Some some have tried to discredit some of that research, some of those like 12 studies that I mentioned by saying that they used a very broad definition of gender dysphoria, that they lumped together the kids who are only mildly gender dysphoric with the kids who are very severely gender dysphoric. But even when you remove the more mildly gender dysphoric, even when you focus on only the more severely gender dysphoric, even among them, something like 40, 50, 60% are, are desisting eventually. 
So it seems to me that based on all the evidence that we have from multiple research groups from the U.S., from Canada, from Europe, that there is a very large proportion of pre-trans kids who end up being perfectly happily non-trans or cis. Now, I want to caveat this, that the age matters quite a bit. So our, our listener uh, says they, they have a four-year-old. This, this is the data for very young pre-pubescent kids. The, the kids who start or, or who still identify as trans post-puberty. So these kids are right, very young. They're pre-puberty. Right. And for the pre-puberty kids, you do have this very high rate of desistance. However, if kids continue to identify as trans at, around puberty and post-puberty, then the vast majority of those kids are going to indeed transition persist. and persist. Yeah. So, there, so yeah, this is not at any age. Yeah. This is specifically, there is a high rate of desistance for kids who are cross-identifying at a very young age. Now, I want to point out, these results should not be exaggerated in the other direction either. Nobody is saying that it's 0% of kids who persist, just like we're not saying it's not 100%. And it's not even like probably 5 or 95 we're talking about very large numbers, very large proportions of both kids who yeah. persist and who desist, whether we're talking about 60 or 70 or 30. You know, th- these are still pretty large numbers of people. And that's, that's why we need to make sure we treat each person as their own person and right. take into, in, into consideration all the factors specifically relevant to them and provide them with the best care that we need. And very often, these researchers who are doing some of this research are being attacked as being anti-trans, as somehow trying to argue that trans people should not get rights or, you know, they shouldn't get access to all the health benefits and and resources that they need. And I, I actually really fail to see the connection. Like, this makes no sense to me. Just because you're saying that maybe half of these kids do not need medical interventions just yet, and maybe we should wait, that doesn't make you anti-trans. Like, yeah. that, no, if these kids really do persist in their cross-gender identification, then I am all for providing them with all the necessary resources that they yeah. need to transition I mean, I could to see be their, healthy and happy I could trans s- adults. I could see their passion, the, the trans activists, because think about the uphill battle they've been fighting for for decades so any battle that they take on you they take it on with fervor and passion which Mm -hmm. you get yeah i know what you're saying that basically you know you should open your mind to all this data that exists out there it's not like there's only you know like you said there's about a dozen studies which is not a lot but still there's actually is kind of a lot especially given that these studies follow their longitudinal studies they're studies that follow kids over time which is kind of hard to do it's much more time consuming and 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 uh, money consuming and all that so yeah, we have pretty decent evidence that this is not something that is very rare. Yeah. And I think people really need to take into consideration the fact that transitioning is not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. It requires a lot of medical interventions to the body. And so you don't want to just do that in a rushed way. So if you have a three or four year old who is cross gender identifying, I think it is very often prudent to wait a little bit uh, before you decide that this is for sure a trans kid. So what would you give this advice to this young lady who said the four year old, you know, give it time? Well, she's asking about the odds. Yeah. And I would say the odds are somewhere around like 50, 60, 70 percent chance that uh, your boy, right, it was a boy, Mm -hmm. will 
end up identifying as a boy. And mm-hmm. there's about 30, 40, maybe 50% chance that um, she will grow up to identify as a woman. At this point, wait, I think, and uh, wait wait and see. Yeah. Um, when they're this young, there's a whole question of what do you do? Like at, at this point, you wouldn't do any kind of medical intervention, mm-hmm. but you can do social intervention in terms of are you going to um, dress them as a girl. Dress them as a girl. Yeah. Uh, have them use a name that is a girl name. Have them use the girl's bathroom at school or in kindergarten yeah. or whatever. And and those are, I don't know, difficult decisions. And it will depend on the uh, specific environment. Often it's, it's good to let them kind of self-identify what they want to wear and what they want to play with and, yeah. and all that. And uh, without being, I guess, like too militant about either one and um, seeing where, where that takes them. Uh, the other worry is if you transition them too early and too completely then then you're kind of uh, solidifying that identity too soon right so i think some level of flexibility especially in the in those early um years of like age three four five six is is probably most prudent yeah well, thank you very much for all the questions. We ran the gamut, didn't we, there? Wow, yeah, Dr. there was a lot of diversity <laughs> in that. <laughs> that was quite a roller coaster. Well, again, thank you very much for everyone who wrote in. You could always uh, check us out online. We're on all social medias, the Science Sex Podcast. Send us questions whenever yeah. you want, and then you know we could do a show like Every this. Every now and then, yeah. yes, we'll answer questions. Yes, please. We lo- I, I actually really love this. I don't know if you loved it, but I enjoyed answering I was impressed questions. by you. I was oh, like, really? wow, you're a pretty smart lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't know that already? Yeah, sure I did. <laughs> Thank you. Great job. Well, thanks, Dr. John. What do we got next week on the Science Sex Podcast? So next week, we're going to have Dr. Catherine Clement talking about a study that she did comparing rape-supportive beliefs, sexism, thinking that you know women want it even when they don't want it, those kinds of things like rape myth beliefs. So comparing these rape-supportive beliefs between People engaging in BDSM cultures, the bondage, dominance, submission, domination, submission. The kinky stuff. The kinky stuff versus your good old college student. Who do you think has more rape supportive beliefs? Can you give me time to answer that question? (laughs) You have a week. All right, cool. So uh, I will study up and I'll be back here next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please support us by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That allows more people to actually find it and get educated about all these fascinating aspects of sex science. Cool, Dr. Jana. Well, I will see you next week. Bye. Bye. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with the hosts, go to drjana.com and joepartavila.com. Like us on Facebook at The Science of Sex Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. For more sex science, read Dr. Jana's column at Forbes.com. This has been The Science of Sex. 